This podcast is supported by Siemens, your partner for industrial-grade AI. everybody and welcome to a new episode of our Industrial AI podcast. My name is Robert Weber and it's a pleasure to talk to Peter Seberg. Good morning, Robert. Just returning from my fitness exercise Monday morning. Wow. How about you? Peter, congrats. <laughs> congrats. <laughs> so you're ready to start in our news part and then in our main part, right? Exactly. I am ready. Fit, I am, so to say. Yeah, the, the main part of this episode is about MLOps and how AWS see the market and why they are investing in machine learning hardware. That was very interesting. We did the interview at Festo's I.O. conference. Right. We were there with our podcast studio mm -hmm. and had two days of learning and recording. It was very, very interesting. What was your opinion about the I.O. conference by Festo? Yeah, I think it was fascinating, wonderful environment. What they call it their I.O. conference, I believe, right? Is it now in its whatever, fourth, fifth year, maybe, but they had to make a break. A corona maybe was the third real one, combined AI with software in general, right? Which mm -hmm. I haven't really been part of. And then the, the, the new work thing, which you could feel this wonderful atmosphere, I thought, in where was it? It took place at a former production facility yes. of them, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the uh, one of the main things I took away, uh, which was the the talk by uh, Ansgar Krivat. Uh, he is the former sales person at Festo for many years at the board level, kind of thing. And and then he said, you know, he started in R and D. He's now with Festo twenty five years, and now he's back. He's the CTO since a couple of months now, I believe. Yep. And I, I felt, I heard his main message is, and it was not just, I believe, talking for, for FSO, right? He's saying like the industry, we, all of us, you know, builders of manufacturing equipment. So whatever, you know, our listeners, our 100,000 to a million people, you know, building machines, we need to change our industry from having been a hardware industry for, let's say, 100 years, my words, to yep. become The software industry, right? Uh, that's uh, what I just also mentioned. And I, when I heard you talking about what we're going to listen to today uh, is the talk by AWS. And, and they, as what we know to be a software company, uh, you say have decided to start building hardware like processors, I believe, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I want to add one quote. Ansgar said, "It's this future will be a multi-purpose hardware as a software-defined product packed with right. AI." That's I think uh, that will be the future of automation in in, in right. general. And again, the more I'm looking forward to listen also because you recorded uh, the AWS talk on the second day. I wasn't there. I'm very much looking forward to at what level they then talk about what is hardware. Is hardware then a processor? Is it a different kind of uh, chips? Is it silicon? Yes. Or at what level is it? And you know, and and my understanding is on top of it, yeah, we can build you know tens, hundreds, thousands of different kind of software uh, apps, basically. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's a very good representation of where the industry is moving. Spoiler, they won't work on the edge. That's, uh, the, oh, that's really? one spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> good. Okay, well, we can, we can discuss it maybe next time as well, a little bit more detail. 
I have one more information for our listeners. We recorded this episode on Monday. You will hear us today. And by then, GPT-4 may have been released and it's multimodal. This is what Microsoft employees revealed. And we are curious and we will talk about next episode then about GPT-4. Right, Peter? Uh, yeah, if I can do my first one, it's not explicitly about, but it also, it's also multi-model, I guess, because in the meantime, and of course, all the big US, but also European organizations, you know, trying to keep up are putting one after the other large language model. And this one is about actually combining because it's about uh, Google's Palm E, Palm Dash E. And that's what uh, Google, together with the Technical University Berlin, have introduced Palm E. And this one combines the capabilities of large language model with those of a large computer vision. So it's already language and vision, right? So it can generate language, describe images, um, and use both together to guide robots through mm -hmm. complex real-world tasks. There is this example, a video you see, you tell the robot, you know, go and get the sugar from the cupboard. And, mm -hmm. you know, so we can discuss it a bit later. So I have two comments from two persons on LinkedIn, actually, when I shared it there. So we have Fred Simkins, who I'm going to do a, an interview with in the next couple of weeks. He says, I'm impressed, but I think in the practical sense, rethink robotics, which he says is not part of Siemens. I don't think it's part of Siemens, but Siemens has done an investment, right? Uh, it's, it's this cobot Sawyer and the Intera software, other systems like it, represent a better solution. That's what um, Fred says. Mm -hmm. And then as a person I hadn't seen before, Luciano Zortzin, he's the CEO and founder of SIP4N, if I pronounce that correctly, Productivity Services. He says, so you're seriously recommending linking mechanical devices that can't generically tell if they're doing harm to speech generators that don't know what they're saying? Mm -hmm. um, so he is obviously <laughs> not an, a large language model fan. He says, in many countries, this is a sensitive gateway to millions of dollars in damage claims, also in the EU. Well, of course, I am not suggesting anything. What I happen to do typically is I share, you share. You know, things happening in the world. I always put it between quotes, right? It's not my thoughts. Uh, but I, I give this to you, Robert. What do you think? Because you're a lot more in the robotics industry at home, actually. What do you think? Are we going to see large language models eventually enter the industry? Sure. I'm absolutely convinced by this. There's one piece you can use, ChatGPT, to program a robot uh, with Ross, for example. That's okay. only one very, very, very small part. Right. But we will see large language model in robotics, I'm sure. So Absolutely. I'm not a specialist. Rost is a, is a program language explicitly for robotics. It's an open source language. So, yeah. Right. And if we compare it then with, say, if you just mentioned GPT-4, we talk about it in two weeks again, uh, large language models, they scrape uh, whatever they find from the internet, uh, including, for example, let's, let's use this example as my question, Python. That means that if you're going to then ask ChatGPT to write a, a piece of software in Python, 
Python, then, you know, it's increasing your productivity, right? That's what we've all learned, I believe, and we talked about it, and that's a good thing. Still, you as a human, as the software coder, need to be very careful. You need to look at the code yeah. uh, because we've already learned that the quality of the code doesn't become better. And what you're saying is, in a similar way, um, this um, whatever large language model uh, has looked at ROS, at you know thousands, millions of ROS programs, so you can now ask it to write a piece of software uh, in ROS for you to program a, a robot similarly. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I talked to a guy at the I.O. conference at Festo, and he said, yeah, I'm using ChatGPT to simplify my code. So I write the code, okay. and then I will give it to ChatGPT, and then the the tool will simplify my code, will improve my code. And that's very okay. interesting, I think, yeah. It is very interesting because, as I just said, you know, the first research that was looking at, I don't know, I don't know which one it was, hundreds or thousands of pieces of software written with the help of ChatGPT that was saying that the quality has not improved, actually. So you need to be careful. And simplifying is, of course, a very good thing. Yeah. What is happening? We are continuously all the time adding layer after layer after layers. At the bottom, there is a microprocessor, silicon, and it's only the electronic design engineers from Cadence, uh, Mantor Graphics, in the meantime, Siemens, those people who know how that works. And then 10 layers on top of it, today we are with programs, we are with ChatGPT, or maybe it's layer 15 already. So we're adding all the time all these layers, right? And Typically, it's not necessarily simplifying. It's simpler. It's easier for us at a higher level. And that's why we increase our productivity. But typically, it, it would not necessarily mean that your code, instead of, let's say, 100 lines, becomes you know 50 lines. So it's very interesting this um, person uh, shared that thought with you. My second news is about our event in the Alps in summer. Mm -hmm. Everything is prepared. The participants are waiting in the wings, <laughs> you can say. This is time we have guests from Moore, Phoenix Contact, Festo, Siemens, Lenze, Keber, Trumpf, Arburg, Dürr, and many more. It's a very, very, very interesting group, I think. And we need to say thank you to our partners because without our partners, we were not able to realize this great event. So a big thanks to Hannover Messe. We will mm -hmm. see you in April and to Jonas and to Time Echoes. Thank you very much. And we are really looking forward to be our partner. Right. Where are we going to be exactly in the Alps? The Alps are we, big. Are, we will be in Zug am Arlberg. That's mm -hmm. near Lech am Arlberg. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very beautiful, small village. And we will have the the mountains and we do some right. hiking. I'm really looking forward for the summer. Yeah. I was sharing this thought with um, an older person, uh, actually. And and she was saying, oh, isn't that where the, the royal Dutch family goes yes, for exactly. skiing as well? Exactly. Exactly. And she was reminding me of a, of a tragic accident that had actually happened there, right? Yeah, yeah. During skiing. Right. But we don't need to go in there. But, I mean, Lech, of course, is famous for its as a skiing resort. But yeah. uh, and I think I've been there once passing through, I believe. I haven't been there in summer. So really looking forward for that reason. And, of course, for meeting, interacting with uh, what you could say the who is who of the at least European and maybe soon to become global um, manufacturing industry. 
One guest is from Intrinsic, it's an alphabet company, so we are a little bit worldwide. Okay, so we're growing to become really international. That's very yeah, nice. Absolutely. Let's move on with your news because Samir yeah. is waiting in the main part. Uh, yeah, good. I'll do it uh, shortly, uh, quickly. Yeah, uh, talking about the world. The world, according to Market US, that's a research company, industrial AI is expected to rise at a compound annual growth rate. I recall that synonym CAGR from my past mm -hmm. um, at 52.42%. Not 50%, no, 52.42%. <laughs> so this encompasses the application of uh, artificial intelligence technologies, machine learning, computer vision, stuff we just talked about, uh, natural language processing, all the good stuff to enhance industrial operations and manufacturing. So it's really all the topics that we explicitly uh, talk about in our podcast, right? So they say it's growing from, it's about 3 billion uh, last year to 216 billion. Ooh. So that's in 10 years, 50% uh, grows every year. They say geographically, North America is number one, yeah. uh, Europe number two, and then Asia Pacific. Okay, perfect. And your last news? Yeah, my final one. We did talk about it a couple of months ago, I believe, very quickly. I did attend the ceremony at the Munich University of the Armed Forces, uh, and there Ernst Dieter Dickmanns received the cross of the first class of the Order of Merit of the Federal Republic of Germany for his work as the pioneer, uh, I would say the inventor of autonomous driving. Let me share two short sections from the yeah. uh, eulogy um, which was spoken by the uh, Bavarian Minister of State for Transport in the name of our federal president Frank-Walter Steinmeier. So it says in the early 1980s you and your team equipped a transporter with cameras and other sensors. This vehicle had been modified in such a way that the steering wheel, throttle valve and brakes could be controlled by a computer based on a real-time evaluation of image sequences. For safety reasons, the first driving experiments took place in 1986 on the test track of the University of the Armed Forces in Munich, Norbiberg, and on a new motorway that had not yet been open to traffic. And from 1987, the test vehicle, that's how it was called, the test vehicle for autonomous mobility and computer vision was able to drive completely autonomously at speeds of up to 96 kilometers per hour and was thus far ahead of the competition, which was still traveling at walking pace. So I don't go into any more details. 1986, you know, that's yeah. not 25 years ago. That's 37 years ago, right? So, of course, I am very happy. And Steeter Dickmanns, uh, and, and we talked about this, but I need to quickly, in his acceptance speech, he once again told the story, and you know the story, <laughs> his use in the Cologne area when the tractor, you know, machines entered the field of agriculture, right? And of course, they were more powerful, but they were not as smart as the horse, which, you know, when in the past... Uh, at the end of the day, when, when he was tired and he was sitting on the box of a, of a horse-drawn carriage, he would maybe fall asleep and the horse would find its own way home. Yes. I've told this story before, I know, <laughs> but it's the, that is the reason where he said, you know, these machines, these tractors, they need to become a lot more smarter. And the second thing is then he said, he had the first understanding of what later we talked about is Moore's Law. He said he, he, he had understood the doubling of the processor performance, right? And he says, 
that means I have 25 years to make autonomous driving happen. And that's what he did. So, of course, I'm very, very happy for Anne-Cedar Dittmann's finally uh, receiving. Um, and uh, secondly, the award. And secondly, I'm going to use uh, words that Jürgen Schmidt, who were actually used in his Honda critique, and he said there, you know, we need to make sure that science must not allow corporate PR to distort the academic record. So I'm very happy that we have set this one straight. Others to come. Did you have some tears in your eyes, Peter? It sounds I actually like did, it. yeah. I'm a very, uh, we say I'm built close to water is a, <laughs> is a German saying. I yeah. kept very far in the back because I was really, uh, I heard that we had the uh, Academy Awards last night. Yeah. Uh, did you hear? And I heard that the guy, uh, was it was it the guy, the person? I yeah. wasn't completely clear. The winners, they had also, they were uh, crying on stage. And uh, yeah, you can already hear. I could have done that as well actually it was uh, it was very emotional thank you peter it was a pleasure to talk to you we start with our main part and zamir it's not emotional but it's very interesting looking forward to robert have a good day bye bye thank you bye bye it's a pleasure to have a new guest from amazon web service samir aruja de sosa right that's right robert thank you wonderful name samir Thank you very much. We are here at Festo uh, at the AI conference. Before we start, introduce yourself in two sentences, please. Well, I'm an AI ML solutions architect based in Amsterdam, and I basically work with machine learning model optimization for the cloud and for the edge. And you work for Amazon Web Service, right? Yeah, correct. You're based in Amsterdam. We had an episode about Amsterdam. Is Amsterdam the new AI powerhouse in Europe? What is your opinion? Yeah, so there are lots of new startups working with AI ML in different areas. So agriculture and, and food chain and supply chain. So I can say that it's a new place for hot startups in this area. I want to talk a little bit about MLOps. Can you explain us in three sentences the importance on MLOps for industry representatives and what role AWS plays in? Yeah, sure. So MLOps is a buzzword, yeah. but uh, we can understand it as a concept where you basically join two terms, machine learning, and we are borrowing ops, the operations from CISADMIN, from the infrastructure. So when we merge these two concepts, we have another concept that is basically how to create a pipeline or a sequence of steps to build a machine learning model. And then you automate this sequence of steps. So by automating this, you are industrializing the machine learning model training. And in the end, you can repeat this as many times as you need to achieve like a faster time to market. Okay, and you scale the whole ML process, right? Exactly. You can see the automated pipeline as a function. So you encapsulate all the tasks in, into a function and you can pass parameters to override this. And these parameters can basically increase the size of the infrastructure or reduce the size of the infrastructure automatically for you, depending on the size of your model, uh, the size of your data set, and the number of steps you have under the hood, and how fast you need this model to be trained at the end. How do you automate this process? Basically, there are some core functions, fun core fun functionalities, like model training, uh, model deployment, model optimization, evaluation. And on top of it, you put an abstraction layer. So AWS has a service called SageMaker Pipelines. 
or StageMaker Studio or whatever? Yeah, so with StageMaker Pipelines, you can create using just a Python script. You can create a series of steps. And in the end, you have this function that I mentioned. And by invoking this function, you basically run this pipeline automatically for you. So this is how you automate everything. And you can invoke this and you can integrate with other services. So let's suppose you have a pipeline like this and you are collecting more data. And you can integrate your storage, your data storage. And uh, when you copy a new data set to this storage, you can trigger your pipeline and execute it automatically. This is something that you can do. How does it work? There is a, a service uh, called S3. S3 is the object storage provided by AWS. And the integration is a native event triggering. There is a, a configuration you do on S3. And basically with this configuration, you can say, hey, every time a new file or a new metadata file is copied to this bucket, to this storage, invoke this service. Are MLOps business model for automation companies like Festo? Because in front, the development with many AI companies and as a guarantor of the industrial grade are the big players like Festo. Is this a business model for the future to sell MLOps as an automation company? I think it is because let's take Festo as an example. So they started with one or two models, but they need to address multiple business challenges, let's say hundreds of different business challenges. And they need to keep training and retraining models to address these challenges. So if they need to do everything manually, it's a heavy burden and it will cost a lot and it will be hard for them to achieve the time to market expected by the internal areas. So by automating and de industrializing every model they need to put in production, they can accelerate a lot the business and guarantee lots of things like, for instance, repeatability. So they can reduce the error, reduce cost. They can protect the data because by automating, they can just allow the services involved in the pipeline to communicate between themselves. So there are many benefits in the end. And they also can add monitoring to the, all these pipelines, these automated pipelines. And by monitoring these models in production, they can check if the model performance is decaying or if there was a data drift, which means that the behavior of the users is changing. So something that was a trend in the past is changing. So this is, can be interpreted as a data drift. So this is a signal that Festo can basically use to send back to the pipeline and retrain the model, collect more data, retrain the model, and repeat the process as many times as they need. In my opinion, it's also a new business model for them because imagine there's a machine building company and they have a lot of machine learning models in their machines and in their factory and their processes. And you need somebody who is able to do this ML ops. And is it a business model for Festor or is it a business model for AWS to do that? Yeah, that's a good point. Because when you sell a machine, when you sell a robot, you are not selling the hardware. You need to sell the support, the software and everything. So if you embed the machine learning pipelines required to build the models used by the robots into the product, this can be seen as a business model because you are embedding these resources there and, and allowing your customers to rebuild these models seamlessly because they don't need to, to know the details of how to train these models or which infrastructure they need to build these pipelines. So you are aggregating, you are adding value to the product 
and changing a little bit the business model because you're not only selling robots, right, in the end. But I think some recognize this business model and some see this as a business model and some are still sleeping, I think. What is your opinion on this? They want to sell hardware and do not want to sell the ML ops part. Yeah, it depends on the maturity level of the, the customers. So normally the hardware industry, the robot industry, it's normal that the companies focus first on the equipment, on the hardware, and then they will evolve the software. But this is a chance for AWS to sell MLOps, right? Correct. We have the services. I mean, SageMaker is a, a managed service so that supports the whole machine learning pipeline, and it has tons of features for the data scientists, for the machine learning practitioners to build not only machine learning ops, on top of these serves, but also other things like uh, you can label data, there is a, an IDE, a Jupyter-based IDE that the data scientists can use. So it's true. So it's a partnership in the end. Yeah, it's both sides. On the one hand, you're a partner of the automation companies maybe, but if they don't see this business model, it's a possibility to go as AWS in this business. Exactly, yeah. And my question is, how do you make this pipeline robust, industrial robust, industrial robust models. And how do you do that? As I mentioned before, what is the goal of a machine learning pipeline? To have a trained machine learning model capable of addressing a particular business challenge in the end. So a robust pipeline is a pipeline with the least number of steps to achieve your goal. And also a pipeline that can be repeatable. So which means that every time you copy new data, it will repeat the process the same way and produce a new model at the end. And you can do this by simplifying a lot your pipeline and running some tight sequence of steps. So for instance, normally when you create a machine learning pipeline, you have a data preparation step, a model building, model evaluation, model deployment, and model execution. So if you create a SageMaker pipelines that will execute these steps, it's, it's guaranteed that in the end you have a robust pipeline for you to repeat building this model over and over again. Imagine there's a mid-sized machine building company, 400 people working there, and they have a very good machine. And now they say, ah, I have a very good idea on machine learning, and we want to implement some machine learning application in our machine. How can small companies like this small machine building company use your technology? How difficult is it to use? Yeah, that's the beauty of SageMaker because SageMaker exposes all these features. So training, data processing, evaluation, deployment as just simple APIs. In the user's perspective, you don't need to know about the infrastructure. It will provision under the hood for you. For instance, to train a model, you just invoke an API, you pass a training code And SageMaker will launch the number of instances you need. So if you're running distributed training with multiple instances, multiple GPUs, it will launch all these instances. It will run your training code, will train your model for you, save the model back to an S3 and destroy the infrastructure for you automatically. So this is something that you can integrate with any other tool. You can invoke after training, you can deploy, invoke another API to deploy your model. And this SageMaker will expose your model as just an API. And then you can integrate to the backend of your application. You can integrate with a mobile app. So it's very simple to use. So the challenge for the, the small companies or the medium companies will be just to define, to understand the business they need to address. This is very important. I like to frame a question. 
out of a business challenge. And my solution or the model will basically be the answer for that question. So for these companies, they need to frame the business challenge as a question, start experimenting, building small POCs for training, for data uh, preparation. And then in the end, they can combine this into a SageMaker pipeline and evolve this pipeline. I think it's very interesting what you mentioned, this small, medium-sized companies. But when we talk with this companies, they have a proof of concept and they're very happy. But the most difficult part is then now deploy this machine learning model on the shop floor and then retrain this model and execute this model in a real-time shop floor situation. How do you see that? This is something that we call machine learning at the edge. Yeah. So you can use this infrastructure on the cloud and SageMaker to train your model, to prepare your model. But uh, when you need to deploy the machine learning model to the edge or to a local machine, a local or an embedded system, first, you need to understand the or have the tool chain to compile the model, to prepare the model. And then you can run these compilations and, and these optimizations on the cloud after you complete your training. And then you prepare the model. And by preparing, I mean, you optimize, you simplify the model and make it simple to be executed faster in this external or this at the edge. Simplify means I reduce complexity? Yeah, correct. How do you do that? Normally, at the edge, you don't have powerful machines. You have simple computers or simple boards. So by simplifying or opti optimizing the model, you, you can understand there are different techniques. So one common technique is to reduce the size of the model by quantizing it. So quantization is to change the data type that represents the learned parameters inside the model. It seems complex, but it's basically by default, when you train a model, you have the weights represented as floating point 32. I don't know if this is too low level, but let me try to explain. So a machine learning model is represented as a data type into a file. And the weights, they are represented as floating point 32, which means that they use four bytes. Uh, the quantization is an operation where you reduce to, I don't know, two bytes or one byte. And this will basically reduce the size of the model, right? And this is something that you can do before deploying the, the model to the edge. Can you once again explain us the process? Okay, I have the model now on the edge device and now I have an ML ops. What's happening then? Yeah, so you can integrate both by basically integrating the optimization step to your machine learning ops. So you prepare your data, train your model, optimize for the edge device on the cloud, and then you have the model ready to be deployed. And then you can integrate with other services like AWS IoT or Greengrass or other deployment mechanism that will take this optimized model and copy to the edge devices. And then the model can run standalone. So if they don't have a good connectivity later, so they can continue operating standalone in these instances, or if you want to keep sending logs and sending data back to the cloud to retrain this model, eventually you can do that as well. We talked a lot about the edge, and let's talk about a little bit about hardware. You introduced hardware some time ago, AWS Silicon. In Germany, there's a saying, coupler stick to your last. That means stay where you are. Why do you invest in ML hardware now? This is a great question because I think the most important reason for that is to reduce cost and improve performance. We know that uh, when you need to train a model, the default hardware you use, especially when you, you're training deep learning models or 
big language models, foundation models, you use GPUs. And G GPUs were not created for the purpose of training machine learning models. They are generic machines created for accelerating computer graphics, decoding video. So they have lots of useless features. Too powerful? Yeah, it's not that it's too powerful. It has useless features for machine learning, for training machine learning models or for uh, running machine learning models. So uh, in the end, GPUs are more expensive and they consume more energy. And that's why AWS decided to create a silicon technology specific for training and for for running machine learning models. They were designed for that purpose, so they cost less than GPUs, and they have a better performance for that particular purpose. But is hardware scalable? Yeah. Well, in the user's perspective, you have an instance, a virtual machine with a Linux box, with CPUs, and you have the accelerator. Instead of having a GPU, you have Inferentia or Trainio, these silicon technologies that AWS created. So, and you just use your normal deep learning framework, PyTorch or TensorFlow flow. You just import a few things and that's it. It will address and send your models to the hardware and they will be accelerated there. And talking about big models and distributed training, if you need, for instance, if your model is too big and you have like tons of data to process petabytes of data, eventually you need multiple instances, multiple devices. So it is scalable because you can launch as many instances as you need to run your distributed training running on these accelerators, and it will behave pretty much like a, a GPU. So on the year, AWS becomes a competitor to NVIDIA? Yeah, in this sense, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What is your focus? Is it industrial sector, or where do you focus your AWS silicon? I normally support customers in different industries, so healthcare industry, manufacturing, retail, and all of these customers, they need to train machine learning models. So that's why it, it makes sense to use the same infrastructure and, and replicate the best practices across different industries. I work normally focused on machine learning model optimization on the on the cloud and at the edge. Are these silicons are also for the edge? No, this silicon technology that I just described, so Trainium and Inferentia, they are available as Uh, inside the EC2 instances or inside SageMaker, so services for the cloud. But is there a plan to go on the edge? As far as I know, no. Okay, because then you will be a competitor to other automation companies or something like this. Yeah, that's true. But I don't know about the plans for hardware for the edge. To the end. Some weeks ago, I talked to Professor Klambauer from JKU Linz, and he talked about CRISP and about the new paradigms in machine learning. Do you see new paradigms and how will they change the industrial sector? Yeah, so I can talk about the transformers. Yeah. It, that's en vogue, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So in, in the you're, past... You're a fan? Yeah, I am because it simplifies a lot the life of everybody. So because in the past, before transformers, you had different model architectures for each particular problem. So one architecture for computer vision, for image classification, another one for object detection, for NLP, totally different architectures. And now with the transformers, they were designed initially for addressing language and NLP use cases. But after a while of the launch, we saw the benefits in other areas as well. So I see a convergence of all these efforts into transformers and architectures based on encoder and decoder. So this is good because instead of having different model architectures, you can just train or use one type of model and create your foundation model that can be reused to address multiple tasks. So this is a good trend in my understanding. The only side effect 
is that normally these models are huge and they are data hungry as well. So they require lots of resources to be trained, but after they are prepared, so they use less data for the fine-tuning process than the traditional models. So this is good as well. What does this mean for your ML ops business? Well, in terms of the ML ops, there's no big change. It's in the end, it's just a model that will be trained. It will take more time, but for the scale, the services that are managed by a SageMaker pipelines, they are prepared to scale and to launch multiple resources to train this model. So there's no big impact on the infrastructure. Samir, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And thank you very much, Robert.